0: Well, if you would open with me your copies of the scriptures this morning to Romans 6, our reading this morning will be Romans 6, verses 1 through 19. Romans 6, 1 through 19 says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God This is the word of the Lord.
1: Father, we are so grateful for passages like Romans chapter 6. They speak with such clarity and with such power. And we pray today that you would give us insight from this word in the Bible. I pray that you'd help me to make it clear. And that you give us a new understanding of what it means to be free in Christ. So Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Speak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On January 1, 1863, an executive order was issued from Abraham Lincoln that became what we know as the Emancipation Proclamation. In that moment, a number of things changed, all under the banner of these words. Here's what it says. All persons held as slaves within the state or a designate part of the state whereof shall be then in rebellion against the United States shall be then and thenceforth and forever free. In other words, all persons held as slaves in states that were in rebellion were in that moment declared free. It immediately liberated 50,000 slaves in territories in the south controlled by the Union army And it would eventually lead to the liberation of 3.1 million people as the Confederate Army fell. Two years later, it would lead to the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery in all of the United States. Now, can you imagine what it would have been like to suddenly hear that the President of the United States has declared you to be free? Booker T. Washington, when he was nine years old, had that experience. When he wrote about it, he said this, Some man who seemed to be a stranger, a United States officer, I presume, made a little speech and then read a rather long paper, the Emancipation Proclamation, I think. And after reading, we were told that we were all free and could go when and wherever we pleased. So on January 1, 1863, because of an executive order, the legal status of millions of enslaved people suddenly changed. They were free, they could go where they wanted to go, they could leave when they wanted to leave, they were in effect free. But the challenge was to live like it. They were free, but they still needed to live like it. So you could think of Romans chapter 6 as the Emancipation Proclamation for the Believer. Essentially, for those who've received Christ as their Savior, who have admitted they're a sinner, received Christ as their atonement for their sins, Romans chapter 6 says, you're free, and therefore, you need to live like it. And today what we're going to do is dial into this text and to see the way in which Romans 6 shows us that through the cross of Christ, Jesus has put our sin in his target, he has defeated the dominion of the enemy and liberates the followers of Jesus to be free. Over the last um, couple of weeks, we've been looking at this issue of the mortification of sin, and I've tried to summarize it for you like this, that the battle is within, and daily I must fight. Death comes from sin killed only by Christ's might. And Essentially, what I want you to see today is that if you know Christ as your Savior, you're free. Listen to me. You are free, but you need to live like it. I mean, you need to live like it. So we're talking about this theme of the mortification of sin, which essentially is, how do we defeat the power of sin in our lives? To link it to our mission statement, how do you extinguish the passion for sin... While and here's our mission, while igniting a passion to follow Jesus. So those two things go together. Essentially what we're talking about is what spiritual progress is all about. So what does spiritual progress look like? We talked about mortification of sin not as amputation, like you completely cut off the presence of sin in your life, but more like atrophy you by starving it and weakening it give it less power and less strength. So the goal in sanctification, which is where we are right now in this lifetime between justification uh, and glorification, we're right now in this season of progressively becoming more and more like Jesus, that means that we continually weaken the power of sin on one hand while we grow in greater uh, likeness to who and what Jesus is. That's what sanctification is all about. Now last week we looked at the idea of indwelling sin and what it was to have an internal heart-based war zone with the remaining elements, the patterns of sinfulness within us. Now the next two weeks we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit relates to all of this, and then finally looking at what the spiritual disciplines are and how they connect with all of this. So I received a number of questions from folks about, so how does this relate with with Bible study and prayer and community and the Holy Spirit and I'll get there. I promise you. you just got to keep coming. you got to come back a couple more weeks, and we'll get to the Holy Spirit, and then we'll get to the spiritual disciplines. Today, though, I want to talk about this dynamic of this spiritual progress, about what it looks like, and very specifically, how it relates to the issue of our position in Christ, how things that have happened to those who've received Christ as their Savior, those spiritual realities have practical Life on life implications for everything that we do every single day. Let me start by just kind of summarizing the whole and then we'll look at the individual parts tried to summarize what Romans 6 is telling us here, and it to me it looks, as, this is about as close as I can get, you could probably improve on this diagram, but for me it looks like this, that what Paul is talking about in this chapter is first and foremost, you have to know your position, you have to know who you are in Jesus, and again, everything I say today only relates to people who've confessed Christ as their Savior and given your heart and life to them, that gets you into the game of defeating sin. Without Christ, there is no ability to defeat sin. You just keep doing the same things you've always been doing. There's no hope. But in Christ, there's all kinds of hope. Then secondly, Paul shows us that we need to be persuaded, that we need to act in faith, to believe that this position is in fact true, to believe what Jesus says about us, to believe what the Bible tells us in terms of who we are. And then third, it goes into the whole area of what it means to keep presenting ourselves. Not just that we believe it, but we actually, on a daily basis, say, I believe this is true, and here I am. I want to be an instrument of righteousness. And on a regular basis, we're presenting ourselves to God. And then that turns into practical obedience, that we put it into practice. The whole point of what Paul's talking about here in this positional reality is not just some ethereal, theoretical concept. No, no, no. He wants us to actually be holy. In other words, God didn't save you and make you holy just so you could go to heaven. He redeemed you and freed you so you can be holy now. Although incomplete, but to be holy now. And when this happens, what comes out of this is spiritual fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, righteous actions, things you know that could never come out of yourself, in and of yourself, by yourself. And what this does is it then serves to reaffirm that this position is indeed true. So you know what happens with sin? With sin, we fail to believe our position, we present ourselves to sinful activities, we do them, and then that begins to make us think, you know what, I wonder if this thing is even real in the first place. That's why for some of you, you keep going around the cycle of sin and you start wondering, you know what, is this, is this thing, Christianity, real? Am I real? And you know why that happens? That happens because your actions give you less confidence in your position. The beautiful thing happens when, a beautiful thing happens when righteousness begins to come out of your life and you're like, you know what, I know my position, I believe it, I'm presenting myself to God, I'm seriously changing, you know what, this stuff is real. And you keep doing it and doing it and doing it and your confidence in who God is, your confidence in who Jesus is gets stronger and stronger and stronger as you follow Him in obedience. So sin, friends, is simply unbelief. It's a failure to believe what God's Word says about us. And today I want to show you what each of these categories mean in terms of our sanctification. So, the first thing we want to look at is really beginning in verses 1 through 11, and it relates to this whole dynamic of what it means to know your position. So, what does it mean to know your position? Romans 6.1, look at the passage. Paul says, "...what shall we say then..." Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Why is he saying this? Well, he's saying this because chapter 5 was all about great truths about justification. And that person who's justified, Romans 5.1, has peace with God. So somebody might say, okay, well, great. So if I'm justified, like permanently permanently legally declared righteous, then I can just keep sinning and God will keep lavishing His grace on me. And to that, Paul says, Romans 6.1, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer is, by no means. Or New American Standard says, may it never be. Or King James says, God forbid. Why does he say that? Well, he basically says, look, if you really understand what God's grace is all about, then you won't take his grace for granted by continuing in sin. In other words, God's grace liberates you to act like the person who God has made you. He's liberated you. And so the calling then is for you to be free. So look at um, verses 3 to 11 and we'll see the way in which this shapes, um, shapes out in these, um, in these verses. This, the position that Paul is talking about begins in verse 3 where it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. So he's using this baptismal analogy that's coming out of the principle in verse 2, where he says, how can we who died to sin live in it? So the principle that Paul is talking about here is this, that we, those who are in Christ, we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. I mean, that is an incredibly hopeful statement. We are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Would you say that out loud just so I know you're tracking with me on this? Ready? Dead to sin, alive in Christ. Again, dead to sin, alive in Christ. That means that God has over you declared that sin no longer has to control you. And then he shows us that by talking about this baptism idea, using the baptismal metaphor, in the same way that when we put somebody in the tank, we we put them all the way in the water and then pull them all the way out. The idea is when Christ died, you died. As we'll see in a moment, when he arose, you arose. That means that when Jesus hung on the cross, when he paid atonement for sins, that his death became your death, that his crucifixion became yours. Notice death isn't the only thing we share with Jesus. We also, verse 4, share in his resurrection. We're buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So death was not the only thing we shared with Christ. When he died, we died. But here's the other thing. When he rose. We rose. Which means that from a positional standpoint, when Jesus experiences the death and the payment of sin, God takes that and applies that to our account. But when He rises from the dead, Christ's victory is also our victory. So the effect is, is that in Christ I have this position where I'm dead to sin and I'm alive in Christ. But it's the second half of verse 4 that is so important. Because this positional reality is not just something that is A concept or an idea it says that we too might walk in newness of life so again paul is very specifically driving at something here that these positional realities should have a practical implication that the way which we are formed and framed in christ in our position have a result that we should walk in newness of life in other words that vicarious atonement should lead to vibrant righteousness If you really understand what it means to have been buried with Christ, and you really get it in terms of what it means to have been raised with Him, then the effect will be that you will walk in newness of life. And when that cycle, when that process works, you are convinced in your soul that this is the real deal because you know what's coming out of you could have never been done on your own. Verse 5, he restates our spiritual position. We're united in His death. We're united in his resurrection. Look at it. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. Alright, then verse 6, here's another positional reality about the old self. We know that our old self was crucified with Him. The old self, what does that mean? The old self is all of the the old things connected to the Adam nature, the the sin nature, the, the old you, all of the penalties of the law, all the just demands that God would have over you because you're a sinner. And Paul says God took the old self and it was crucified with Christ. The old has been nailed Our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. In other words, you were liberated. No more dominion. No more controlling tyrant of sin. So that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. Again, He's not talking theoretically. He's not talking in the future. He means like right now. Like right now. So Romans 6 is so you can live this afternoon. Romans 6 is in your Bible so you can live Monday morning and you can have a a righteous, godly perspective on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Verse 7, he summarizes the truth of all of this. He says, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8, he repeats the connection between death and life as it relates to us in Christ. He says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with Him. Again, here it is. We, we, we died with Christ, and we live with Christ. That's the equation. That's the position. And then he, he gives us a concluding thought here regarding the permanency of this. The, notice that he says Jesus will never have to die again, and the life that He now lives... In the sense that He's alive presently. In other words, Jesus is personally guaranteeing that this progress of spiritual growth will continue because He is alive. That's why the resurrection is so important. It's not just that He conquered death, but that He conquered death and He can't die again. There's no do-over. He did it once and for all. Look at verses 9 and 10. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. That's gone. Verse 10, for the death He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So the idea is there are these positional realities. And I, I hope that when you hear these things, there's something within you that goes, yes! Because this is what it means to be a Christian, This is what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. It it means that believers in Jesus are dead to sin. They're alive in Christ. When He died, we died. When He rose, we rose. In His death, the old Adam-cursed aspect of who we are was defeated. Its dominion was removed over us every penalty of that former life was completely paid and the effect of this positional reality is that the bible unequivocally says about you listen you are free it's beautiful this is who you are this is who you are And central to this process of sanctification, central to this idea of mortification, is embracing this part of our identity in Jesus. That I have been buried with Him. I'm a new person. I'm a new creature. The old is gone. The new has come. This realization that I am in Christ. Imagine what it would have been like on January 2nd, 1863, if you're a slave. Suddenly, your legal standing has been changed but you still live on a plantation. You still have the same slave clothes on. You may still have the same patterns of slave acting, and you've got a lot to figure out. But the fact still remains is that you don't have to be a slave anymore. And what I want to tell you from this text in Scripture is this, that killing sin begins by understanding that in Christ I am dead to sin And alive in Christ I need to get this into your brain so you understand the beautiful spiritual realities of what Christ has won for you in your position you are in Christ you are dead to sin and alive in him now there's a second piece of this and that is that you also need to be persuaded meaning just simply knowing that this is a fact is one thing but it is also something that needs to be accepted by faith. I mean, imagine back to the slave analogy. This slave has just heard that the Emancipation Proclamation has been read. He hears that all persons held as slaves shall be then and thenceforth and forever free. But he looks around, and everything still looks the same. On the one hand, nothing has really changed. But on the other hand, everything has. So what does he need to do? For that matter, when it comes to your relationship with Christ and as it relates to your perspective on your sin, what do you need to do? Well, what you need to do is you need to believe what you have just heard. You need to believe that you're dead to sin. You need to believe that you are alive in Christ. And like the slave, you will never act like a free person just by hearing about your freedom. You have to believe it to be true. You can read Romans 6 all day long, but unless you take God at His Word and say, yes, that's true, it will never have any impact, never any life in you. So look at Romans 6, 11. Paul says this. He says, so you also must, very important word, consider yourselves. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there it is. You have to consider Yourselves. Again, back to the chart. It means that you have to not only understand your position, but you have to be persuaded. You have to consider yourself. I've heard what you've said in the Word, and I have to believe it to be true. That's what you need to make a decision not even this morning. As you hear Romans chapter 6, you hear about these positional realities, you need to decide, you know what, this is true. I, I believe, I am persuaded, I will consider myself to be Dead to sin and alive to God. That word consider is an important one. It's a Greek word legizomai. It's used whenever Paul is talking about um, theological or spiritual categories that then have practical implications that need to um that by believing then results in in change or actions in one's life. For example, in um in regards to justification. Paul needed to believe Romans three twenty-eight. Needed to consider himself to be fully justified. Or, in Romans um, chapter eight, regarding the value and the point of sufferings, he says we shouldn't. Um, we should consider the sufferings of this life not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed in us meaning you're in the hardship of sufferings and you will consider, you, you take it by faith. Look, I know that this isn't pointless, that there's a point to it, and this is doing something in my life. And in, in every case, when Paul uses this concept or this word, and specifically in Romans 6, there's, there's something that can't be seen, but believing it will produce actions that would clearly be obvious. And so it is that you hear, I'm in Christ, and so you choose, I'm going to believe that that's true. I'm dead to sin. I can't see that. I can't actually get my hands around that. But I believe what the Bible says. The idea is that the first step towards freedom is to believe that you are indeed free. You know what that means for us? It means that as it relates to your orientation with sin... That when sin comes across your path, that you believe, I don't have to do that. And for some of you, that's a thought you haven't had in years. The Bible says you're dead to sin. So a tempting thought comes across your path, a desire comes across. What do you deal, how do you deal with desires and all the things that that come out of a wicked soul? You remind those desires and you remind your own soul, I don't have to do that. I'm dead to that. And you believe that in faith. As it relates to the issue of mortification of sin, it means that we believe what the Bible says about us. We believe that we are in Christ. We believe that sin has been defeated. We believe that our old self was crucified. We believe that we no longer have to serve sin. The problem is some of you don't believe that. You believe you have to serve sin. You don't have to believe. You don't have to serve sin anymore. You don't. Romans 6 says you're free. So live like it. See, the problem is that some people think that faith is what they do when they come to faith in Christ. No, faith is certainly what you do when you come to faith in Christ, but faith is what you do all the time as you live out what it means to be in Christ. A great example of this is Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Look at this text. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. What is that? That's position. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What is that? That's position. Position. And then he says this, notice the practice. And the life that I live now in the flesh, I live by, next word, what is it? Faith. Faith. The life that I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's he believing there? He's believing the position. He said, I've been crucified with Christ and the life that I live every single day is a life of faith where I believe what your word says about me And I choose to believe the promises of your word over the promises of sin. Listen to me. Sin is a belief problem. It is that you believe, we believe, that sin will give us something that we want. And over against the belief problem of sin is the conquering belief reality of the gospel where Jesus says, this is what you are like. This is really important. And here's why. So last week we talked about that there are two kind of warring factions within our soul. And I, I left off a part because I wanted you to know that the battle is on the inside. But one of the things I didn't explain is that even in the diagram that I gave you, it seems as though the battle between two between good and evil is a battle between two equal forces. Not so for the believer. In fact, the Bible says that the evil part of you has been conquered, so I remember growing up in church and you know you try and have metaphors and analogies to try and make this clear and I remember hearing one time about you know it's like two dogs you know you got a bad dog which is a black dog, you got a good dog which is the white dog, and you got two dogs wrestling for control of your life, and whichever one you feed more gets bigger and stronger well that 's great, except newsflash the black dog's dead right. <laughs> So, when when I look at Romans 6, clearly the, 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 the bad part of me has been conquered, has been killed. So get this, while there is a war going on within your soul, it is not an equal war. It's not as though bad is as strong as good in your soul. No, no, no. You are indwelled by the Spirit of God. We'll talk about this next week. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. The problem is that some of us view this tension between good and evil as if this black dog is really powerful when in fact he shouldn't be or maybe maybe that's not helpful maybe think of it this way think of it as a dog maybe on a, on a run that you have or a next-door neighbor it's kind of a scary dog and as you go by you hear his loud bark and you're scared and so you kind of jerk and you're like Ugh. and then one day you turn and look and you see the dog barking at and you start cracking up because you look and somebody removed all of his teeth right so the dog's running out, and he has and he's like, He's got, like he needs dentures or something. Like, rawr, 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 rawr. And you look at the dog, you'd laugh. You're like, you can't do nothing, right? You start showing him your teeth. Like, you know, ah, like these are his teeth, right? See, it would be like a dog that's been defanged. It still has a bark. Still can create old reactions. But the reality is, what's the worst it can do? Gum you to death, you know? And the idea is, this is what has happened with Sin. It has been defanged. And part of the problem, friends, listen, is that we don't look at sin this way. For the believer in Jesus, sin is as unnatural and as unnecessary as an emancipated slave who refuses to leave an abusive slave master. Far too many people, far too many believers, give sin way too much authority. Way too much control, way too much power. And one of the first steps in defeating sin is realizing who you are. Listen to me. By the authority of what the Scriptures tell us, you don't have to sin. Now, I know that you will. I know that I will. But at the end of the day, you don't have to. And the problem is there are many people who walk through life even claiming to know Jesus. And they're like, well, I just can't stop this. I just have to do this. You don't have to do this. You don't have to. There's hope and freedom that comes through Christ. You need to be persuaded that you are dead to sin and alive to God. All right, third Paul then talks about what it means to keep presenting. So we've got this know your position, be persuaded, and then keep presenting. Look at what we see here in verses 12 to 14. He says, do not let sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. In other words, he says, look, stop letting sin reign. It doesn't need to reign. It's a defeated foe. Stop letting it reign. It's it's not supposed to dominate. And then skip ahead to verse 14. We'll come back to verse 13. Verse 14, he says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. So there's a new ruler, a new dominion. You're in a new place. So act like it. In fact, in many respects, we need to see sin as so abnormal that it's just crazy that we would do it. The problem is is that our experience tells us that sin is far too normal and too common, so we excuse it. But we need to see it as, this is ridiculous. This is not how I should live. I mean, it would be like this. So June 25th, 1993, um, my wife and I got married. I mean, imagine what her reaction would be if a week later she said, hey, while we're on our honeymoon, why don't we go out to dinner? Let's go to, um, I don't know, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. And imagine her horror if I said, that's a pretty good idea, but let me call my mom a minute and see if that's what she thinks we should do. <laughs> Could you imagine? I mean, that would be like marriage counseling the next week, right? I mean, it's, I'm in a, it's, a, it's a new realm, right? You don't have to call mom to ask her about what restaurant you should go to anymore, right? You do that, you're kind of like a mama's boy, right? It's, it's not good. Not going to work out for your marriage. Or a friend of mine, one time we were talking, I was giving him some marriage advice, and you know, he said, I really messed up this week. I said, what'd you do? I said, well, have been married about a year or so. He said, my wife made like macaroni and cheese, and it was really bad. It was really bad. I was like, really? He said, yeah, it was really bad. And so I said, what'd you do? He said, well, I, I just suggested, I said, hey, is, this wasn't, really good what do you think if you called my mom and got her recipe (laughs) I said how'd that work out not good not good So, so why 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 is that a problem you know why we're not doing marriage counseling here. This is a little free, freebie. Why is that a problem? Because you're in a new realm. you in a new relationship. And as ludicrous as it is to call your mom about what restaurant you should go when you're married, and as really unwise as it is to call your mom to give your wife a better recipe for mac and cheese that she blew, right? As as crazy as those things are, listen to me. That is what sin is for the believer. You're in a new dominion, a new captain, a new lord, a new master. There's a new flag waving at that castle. So stop messing around in sin because you've been set free. You've got to know your position. You've got to be persuaded. But verse 13 here helps us. We also have to keep presenting. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. What Paul is saying is, look, that's crazy. But instead what? But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Notice the faith. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You know what it means to present? That word means to be, to to give something for service, to to make something at someone else's disposal, to set something up for dedicated use. So the idea is that on a regular basis, you're presenting yourselves to God. You're saying, God, I believe who and what I am in Christ. I'm persuaded that it's true, and I'm going to present myself to you. Best analogy I can think of is, is that a funeral? Or uh, maybe a, some sort of a patriotic ceremony. Maybe you've seen a, a color guard of sorts. I'm not sure exactly what it's called, but you know when they have the, the rifles and the soldiers are spinning them around and they, they shoot them or they, um, they present them of some kinds? Well, at some point in that ceremony, usually towards the beginning, they say, present arms and they show the gun. They present it. And the idea is this, is that we say to God, present me. To be useful for you. Here's me. So that every day on a regular basis, you're saying to God, I, I know what you've told me about who what I am in you. I believe that it's true. And here I am. I am in your service. I belong to you. I'm an instrument of righteousness. I'm on your team. And here I am, ready for service. The problem is is that so often believers in Jesus don't think like that as it relates to their daily life. They just get up and they kind of go on throughout life way too casually, way too intentionallessness in terms of their, um, with a lack of intentionality is what I mean, in terms of their perspective on why they are even here in this world. To present means that I present every aspect of who and what I am to God. It's an earnest, active Which means there's a once-for-all dedication, but it has continual application. That I'm regularly saying, here I am. It's like what we sing in that song, Take My Life. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take myself and I will be ever only all for Thee. For some of you, the reason why you're losing the battle is you're not approaching it every single day of saying, look, I'm here to be used for your service, God. Understanding your position in Christ, believing that it's true and that you must present yourself daily to God means that then you become an instrument of righteousness. Listen, I I need you to realize that this is a battle and you've got to think, so who am I presenting my life to? Some of you are spending a lot of time presenting your life to the forces of evil and it needs to stop. It's, it's affecting your assurance, and it should. Because you've been set free, and you're acting in a way that is spiritually insane. You've been liberated, and yet you're still going back. A failure to understand this dynamic, this wartime, presenting-myself perspective has led to weak Christians and weak churches. Far too casual is our perspective on this battle. Martin Lloyd-Jones, my hero of years gone by, a pastor at Westminster Chapel in England. This is around 1963 when he writes this. The main trouble with the Christian church today is that she is too much like a clinic, too much like a hospital, suffering with mumps and measles of the soul, feeling our own pulses and talking about ourselves. We've lost the concept of the army of God and the king of righteousness in this fight against the kingdom of evil. What we all need is not a doctor, but a sergeant major who is there shouting out the commands of God over you. Commands like, Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Yield not your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Yield yourselves to God. What Jones says, You have no business to be slouching about like that. Stand up on your feet. Realize who and what you are. Enlisted in the army of God. Present yourselves. This is not a clinic. You know what he's saying? For those of you who've been in battle, you know that when you're in a firefight and you're in a foxhole, you don't have time to say, "How you doing? You doing all right? I'm. How you doing? What's going on? You know, how's it going? You all right? You? How you feeling? You feeling okay? How you, do? and you don't have time for that. There's bullets flying. For crying out loud, we got a battle to fight, and we need to realize that's the enemy. We got to go. Let's go now. And the fact of the matter is, friends, we are far too cavalier when it comes to the issues of sin, and we need to be presenting ourselves as living sacrifices to realize. We've been set free. We need to be persuaded and we need to present ourselves. God, I'm here. I want to be a vehicle for righteousness. And that's where we conclude. The last thing is that Paul says, put this into practice. Here's a really important word that needs to be a part of your vocabulary. It's probably one you use with your kids all the time. It's the word obey. Kids aren't the only ones who need to obey. Mom and dads need to obey. Single adults need to obey. Senior citizens need to obey. Obey is why redemption is so beautiful. Because obedience, actual real obedience that fits with righteousness, is what the redemption that we have in Christ is all about. So so sanctification is not just about some position. It actually is about practice. That God doesn't just want to make us holy in the future. Listen to me. He wants you to be holy now. He wants your life to look so radically different in terms of holiness and godliness that everyone around you, that people are like, what is up with you people? Because of the craving, longing within their souls to have that hole in their heart filled, that they would see within your life something that is remarkably different. There are no incognito-Christians you go to work and no one knows you're a follower of jesus that's bad really bad the whole reason you've been redeemed is so that you can make much of him now verses 15 to 19 lay this out they link obedience to the concept of ownership in other words whoever you obey that's who you act as though they own you again back to our cycle our progress a progressive Um, chart that we're looking at we move from knowing your position to being persuaded that this is true keep presenting ourselves and now to actually put this into practice and paul's going to talk about this in verses 15 to 19 look at it he says this what then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace by no means do you not know that if any of you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves you are the slaves of the one to whom you obey that's not rocket science Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience that leads to righteousness. The bottom line is, Paul says, look, who do you belong to? Then you're to act like it. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you once were slaves of sin and have become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. How cool is that? You used to be slaves to sin. Now you're a slave to righteousness, which, by the way, you never stop being a slave in the kingdom of God. The issue is whether or not you're a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. So the whole point of all of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6 is not to talk about theoretical or spiritual positions, but rather to get to the matter of practical obedience. He wants us to really think about the things that come out of our lives. Why are you doing this? And if it's sin, for you to realize this sin doesn't fit with your position. It doesn't fit with what you should believe. It doesn't fit with what you should be presenting yourself to. And for crying out loud, it doesn't make any sense that you'd live this way. It's miserable. Instead, he calls us and says, Look, look at your position in Christ. Be persuaded. Believe that it's true. Present yourself to Jesus and become a slave, a slave of righteousness. This is glorious. What Paul is saying here, what he's calling us to, is a practical daily allegiance. He wants his friends to get serious about righteousness. Just just think about all the time, all the money, all the emotion, all the stuff that you've done to commit sin. Just think of all of that and what Paul wants you to do. And the, and the, the beauty of redemption is that with the same vigor and energy and effort that you serve sin, that you would now serve righteousness. Look at verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, notice that, it just gets worse and worse and worse, sin is never static, once is never going to be enough, and the redemptive reality is now you can present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to, here's the important word, sanctification. So how does that happen? How do you get sanctified? How do you become more like Christ? The answer is you hear the position. You believe that it is real. You present yourselves to Christ and you practically obey. The calling here. The calling is for holiness, for obedience, which shouldn't be just something that super-Christians do. Obedience and righteousness is supposed to be the natural and normal effect of being in Christ, and believing it, and presenting yourself, and then putting into practice. Listen, if you know Christ, you're free. Jesus paid your debt. He crucified the old you. He's removed the tyrannical power of sin. And what I'm asking you to do today is is to believe this and then to act on it. Like, act on it like in an hour. Act on it in 24 hours. Like, Act on it. Be obedient. Use your being for righteousness. Because you know what happens when you don't? Do you know what you're like? You're like a slave who is discovered by a Union soldier months after the Emancipation Proclamation. Imagine the pitiful scene of a slave who is still choosing to live in the terrible conditions of slavery, who's working the fields in fear even though his master has been run off and he's legally free. Imagine that soldier coming up on that slave and saying, look here, man, you're free. Stop living and acting like a slave. The master's gone. We're in charge now. The president has declared you a free man. Walk off the plantation. And the call for people who know Christ as their Savior is this: It's time to walk off the plantation of sinful behavior, and say, "No more! I'm done! I'm free! I'm walking off." You may need to get new clothes. You may need to get new accommodations. You got a lot to figure out, but at the end of the day, you say, "I'm done! I'm free! I'm leaving." And some of you, my hope and prayer would be today would be a kind of day where you would say, "That's it! I'm done! I'm free! I'm gone! I'm leaving." See, the cross has defeated the power of sin. You are dead to sin and alive to Christ. College Park, listen to me. If you know Christ, you are free. So live like it. Be righteous. Be free for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we need You to help our understanding of this very important concept we we need you to take truths in the bible and then help us to believe them and then help us to then live them in in countless ways and in small little areas of our lives not just the big things but all of area all the areas of our lives we need the transforming power of the cross And so I pray today for my brothers and sisters here who need to walk off the plantation of sinful behavior and say, I'm done, I'm free, I'm gone, I'm leaving. And choose every day to say, Lord, I'm here believing what you've done. Father, I pray that today would be a very significant reminder of what it means to be in Christ that would then result in righteous behavior in the next hour and the next day, and the next week. Help us, Lord. We're weary of not believing what your word says about us. We want to be righteous. We want to be holy. So help us to live like free people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of our folks will be up here afterwards to pray with you. If something you need to talk about or pray through, they're here to minister to you or something else going on in your life that's a huge burden. They're here to encourage you and help you today, all right? College Park, I love you. Thanks for coming today. Be free. Live like it, all right? God bless you.